Look at Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 25, or you can follow along on the screen. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that's seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. This is a um, dense passage. And I I need to tell you right now, I'm not going to cover all of it. If you want to go deeper, come on Wednesday nights where we do that, and we'll be doing that this week. Um, Paul says, verse 18, I consider. The Greek word is logizomai, from which we get our English word logic. Paul logicked this out. He thought through the problem of suffering, and he realized that its solution lay outside the borders of this age. As he logicked it out, he discovered what many thinkers have missed. If we frame the issue temporally between an individual's birth and his death, we'll never find the answer to the problem of God's goodness and human suffering. To find the solution, we have to think outside the box, outside the temporal box of an individual's lifetime on earth. Now, more about that later. But for now, notice that Paul considered this. He reasoned through it. He thought about it. The word logizomai appears 40 times in the New Testament. We sometimes get the idea that following Jesus is just a matter of the heart, not of the head, of the spirit, but not of reason. We set faith in opposition to reason as if they were enemies of each other. But when we come to the New Testament, we find something very different. The followers of Jesus think. They think hard. Good thinking always favors a healthy spirituality. Poor thinking always militates against it. Paul writes, I consider that our present sufferings, now in the original language that phrase reads, I consider the sufferings of the now time. The sufferings of the now time. The now time truly is the time of suffering. But don't forget what we've already seen and we're going to see again in this very passage. Things are not the way they were supposed to be. We're living in a spiritual war zone. We've not known peace in our lifetimes, nor did our fathers, nor their fathers, all the way back to Adam's son, Seth. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. And we're not the way we're supposed to be. Imagine someone born in Normandy. 
at the beginning of the Hundred Years' War. Excuse me. War was being waged on the day he was born. War was being waged on the day he died. One battle and then another, interspersed by failed peace treaties, was all he ever knew. As far as he was concerned, he knew what life was about. It's about war and power-mongering and hatred and lies and death, lots of death. Even if he were to live to be a hundred, he would really never know peace. The hundred-year war lasted 116 years. And not only that, he would think that this was the norm. This is the way it was supposed to be. And sadly, it has been the norm. We live in the age of war and death, the time of suffering. It's all we've ever known. In this age of the world, we must sacrifice one good to gain another and often feel compelled to do evil to avoid worse evils. Danger and hardship is never far from us or from the people we love, and we think that this is normal. But the way things are and the way they've been, that's history. Not the way things were supposed to be, nor the way they're going to be. That's hope. Everyone has this history. Not everyone has this hope. If you want to find this hope, you have to look to the followers of Jesus. Now, it might be worth pointing out that because of suffering, some people have given up on God and renounced belief in his existence. One of the foremost um, authorities on ancient biblical texts has done exactly that because of suffering. Interestingly, the idea that suffering disproves the existence of God is a relatively modern and almost exclusively Western idea. Prior to the 1800s and outside of Europe and America until very recently, the idea that suffering somehow disproved God's existence was almost entirely absent. So how did relatively modern Westerners endowed with more material advantages than any previous civilization in history come to think of suffering as proof that God doesn't exist? It happened as the biblical view of God as creator, redeemer, and king was replaced by a distorted view of God as the servant of human happiness, health, and prosperity. In the West, our Father in heaven has been usurped by our Santa in heaven. But earlier Christians knew better. They knew in the words of George MacDonald that the Son of God suffered unto death, not that men might not suffer but that their sufferings might be as his. That is, that the suffering all men face might mean something and accomplish something in and through their lives. Paul tells us that after thinking this through, after logicking it out, he's come to the conclusion that the sufferings of the now time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. The word translated worth comparing has the idea of weighing two things on a balance scale, which was the only kind of scale that was available then. When Paul placed the suffering of the now time, and he knew more about suffering than almost anybody, when he placed the suffering of the now time on the scale alongside the coming glory, the scale didn't even budge. It's like putting a child on one side of a seesaw and an elephant on the other. The elephant won't even know the child's there. Now, that's hard for someone living in the sufferings 
of the now time to believe. We feel as if no future bliss could possibly make up for today's troubles. We've lived so long with dissatisfaction and unhappiness, and for some people, extreme anguish of body and soul, that we can't believe that the sorrows of today will not flow over into the happiness of tomorrow. But that's because we think that we'll be the same then as we are now, only situated in a better place. But that is not our hope. Our hope is not in a change of location, but in total renovation. Our hope is not merely a better place, heaven, but a transformation, resurrection. The dead... Paul says, will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. We'll be changed. We will be changed the way an unborn child is changed by birth. He doesn't remember how cramped and difficult the time was in his mother's womb. He doesn't recall the doctor's concern when his heartbeat was faint or the suffering he endured when his mother ordered the video Tai Chi for the expectant mother. His delivery fundamentally transformed his life. And Paul knew that our delivery will do the same for us. That idea is clear in our text. Paul doesn't merely say that glory will be revealed to us, as good as that is. But glory will be revealed in us. That's consistent with teaching throughout the New Testament on what people mistakenly call the afterlife. That's like calling the Super Bowl the after practice. We will bear an eternal weight of glory. Our genuine faith will result in praise, glory, and honor, 1 Peter 1, 7, when Jesus Christ is revealed. We will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father, Jesus says. Jesus comes not to be glorified before his people, as wonderful as that would be, but in his saints. We now share in Christ's sufferings, then we'll share in his glory. And this process has already begun. If you're a believer in Jesus, it's already begun. Just as the process of becoming a full-grown man or woman starts while the child is still in the womb. So Paul writes, we are being transformed into the same image, that is Christ's, from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. That's cause for rejoicing. And not just for us, but for the whole of creation. Look at verse 19. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Don't worry, mothers and daughters, you're included in the sons of God, which you may remember was a title frequently given to angelic beings in the Old Testament. Here it refers to us, to believers in Jesus. We are going to be revealed. It will be a grand affair. And no one at this coming out party will be more surprised by our revealing than we will be. It's going to be a really big show. All creation will wait in eager expectation for it. It will be bigger, apologies to John Lennon, it'll be bigger than the Beatles. All of history, everything in creation is moving toward this moment when the children of God will be revealed. 
we will go from being shadows then to being men and women, from living in creation's womb to taking our place in God's larger world. The sense of desire, of eagerness for this moment is emphasized, an English teacher might say overemphasized in verse 19. The literal translation reads like this. In eager anticipation, it's a noun, the creation eagerly anticipates, that's the verb, the revelation of the sons of God. Creation's pacing the floor, waiting for the day to come when we will be revealed. A better metaphor might be this. Creation is a mother who in the dog days of summer can't wait another minute for her overdue baby to be born. Look at verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. The coming out party for which creation so eagerly awaits is a delivery, a special delivery, a birth. Do you remember how England and how the world really celebrated last year when His Royal Highness Prince George of Cambridge was born? That's nothing compared to the party that will be held when creation's childbirth pains finally come to an end and the children of God make their debut appearance. Now, there's good reason for creation's impatience. She's in the pains of childbirth. The Greek word refers to being in labor. When our first son was born, Karen went into labor in the middle of the night. So at 4 a.m., we drove into the hospital where many of the workers were on strike, and they were picketing. And somebody kicked our car when we drove into the driveway and told us to go away. Go away, they shouted. I wasn't going away. My wife is going to have a baby any minute. He was born 15 hours later. (laughs) And he still takes his time about everything. (laughs) Sometime during that long day, it felt like a week, to help take Karen's mind off the pain, I got out a novel we'd taken to the hospital that I had talked her into reading in the first place, and I began to read it aloud to her. And by now, the contractions are coming. You know, they're not that far apart. And I'm just reading right along. And at some point, she gave me the look. (laughs) The, are you really going to do this now look? And told me, she didn't ask me, she told me to stop reading. Childbirth is no walk in the park. They don't call them birth pains for nothing. Creation is having contractions. They're coming close together now. She groans like a woman in labor, and there's good reason for her to groan. Verse 20 says that creation was subjected to frustration, not by her own choice. In in Greek, it's not willingly, not, not by her will, but by the will of the one who subjected it. What's that about? What does Paul mean when he says that creation was subjected to frustration? Who subjected it, and why was it subjected? The word translated frustration does not signify a feeling of vexation or annoyance, but an objective state of futility or meaningless. God made the universe to serve a purpose, a purpose that creation has not and cannot now fulfill. Imagine you visit a remote island in Indonesia where the people have been isolated from the modern world, totally isolated, and you take with you an illustrated book loaded with instructions about almost anything you can imagine, including things that will benefit the 
islanders tremendously. How to drill a well, they're desperate for water. How to build a house, how to construct a bridge. Each spring when the river floods, they're cut off from the rest of the island. There's even information on gardening in the tropics. There's all kinds of things that will improve their lives. You show your new Indonesian friends all of this, and then you bid them goodbye, promising to return if God so wills. Two years later, you get to go back. The people on the island are delighted to see you. But everything's exactly as it was when you were there two years before. There are no new bridges, no houses, no wells, no gardens. You find that they have used all the paper in the book to start the fires that they cook with, for which it served admirably. That's not why you left the book with the islanders. Paul would use of that the word that's used here, translated frustration. The book was subjected to frustration. That is to meaninglessness, to purposeless. It didn't serve the purpose for which it was made. That, Paul says, is what's happened to creation. It doesn't serve the purpose for which it was made. And we want to know who's responsible. I mean, who is to blame for subjecting creation to meaninglessness and frustration? Now, be careful here. The answer is God. God is responsible. It was God who made man the ruler over the works of his hands and put everything under his feet, including all biological life. That's Psalm 8. When God made humans, he authorized them, remember? to subdue the earth and rule over all of its creatures. For good or ill, God chose to bind the welfare of creation to the condition of humanity, and humanity has not fared well. And as humanity goes, so goes creation. Now, I told you things are not the way they were supposed to be. Creation was to be our mother. We've turned her into our slave. Creation was to be a temple. We've turned it into a shopping mall. Creation was meant to provide for us. But sometimes she trembles so badly that our cities shake and crumble. She's incontinent and our coastlines flood. She alternates between fevers and chills and our crops turn to ice or turn to dust. This is not the way things were supposed to be. That's a matter of history. It's not the way things are going to be. That's a matter of hope. And hope will not disappoint us. The last two words of verse 20 open the door to a new reality for us and for all creation in hope. God did not make a mistake when he linked the welfare of creation to the condition of humanity. He knew what he was doing. His plan from before the creation of the world was to restore, more than that, to glorify humanity through Jesus, who is, as Paul calls him elsewhere, the second Adam the beginning of the new humanity. He's the savior, John tells us, of the world. And if ever a world needed saving, it's ours. But for now, creation suffers because of us, and we suffer because of it. Creation is, this is verse 22, in bondage to decay. That probably refers back to what Paul just said about creation's subjection to frustration. For the time being, birth inevitably leads to death. Growth imperceptibly turns to decline. Light fades into darkness. That's the second law of thermodynamics. 
And it is in effect everywhere without exception. Everything runs down. Order turns to chaos. Energy is frittered away like Justin Bieber's cash. But in the context of birth pains, there's another possible interpretation of this. The Greek word that Paul chose, that the NIV translates as bondage, is literally slavery. The common word for slavery. The word translated decay, frequently translated corruption and destruction, could be translated abortion. It was certainly used that way in the Greek of Paul's day. And the didache, the, the teachings of the 12 disciples, and in the epistle of Barnabas as well, it's in classical Greek. If that's what Paul had in mind here, he was picturing creation as having been enslaved to a hated master, a sex trafficker, who forces her to have an abortion every time she gets pregnant. She never manages to come to term. That's futility. But that's going to change when the children of God are delivered. Verse 21, creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Creation will be freed from the slavery that's prevented her from coming to term and has held her against her will in an endless cycle of futility. More than that, creation will be brought into the freedom of the children of God. A literal translation might run, that even creation herself will be freed from the slavery of corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. See, in the next chapter of the amazing story, stage production, if you will, of redemption, creation finally gives birth to the free and glorious children of God. And by their birth, she's set free to become what God always intended her to be. If you love God's creation, if you're awed by her splendor, at home in her vastness, devoted to her care, but you're not a Christian, I have to ask, what is wrong with you? You love creation so much, but you haven't seen anything yet. When creation is freed from her chains and cleaned up and presented in her beauty, it will be all joy and glory. But she doesn't achieve that status apart from us. She achieves it with us, through us even. She is freed into the freedom of God's children. Her freedom depends on us. Now listen. And our freedom depends on God's Son, Jesus Christ, the Lord of creation, the second Adam, the Son of righteousness, the radiance of God's glory. Take Jesus out of the story and it falls to the ground. Without him, our future glory, and with it our hope, is gone. Without him, creation remains in her chains. Our hope, and not only ours, but the hope of the world, the hope of all creation, lies with Jesus Christ. Like creation, we too need to be set free. Free from meaninglessness, from hopelessness, from addictions, from fears, and from sins. God intends his children to be free indeed. Free to be themselves. To be the people they were always meant to be. Creation groans. So do we. Verse 23, not only so, not only does the creation groan, 
But we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. When God sent Jesus to save us, he had in mind our adoption as his children and everything that entails, including the redemption of our bodies. It's this that finalizes us, that confirms and ratifies us in our full humanity. Until that moment, we remain incomplete and tentative, which is why we groan. This morning, when the sound guys finish recording this message, the CD recorder up there will display one word with a question mark, finalize. And they have to say yes or the CD won't play in your CD player. The final step for humanity is the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. If we don't experience, we won't play in the new heaven and earth. When we say yes to God and trust in his son Jesus, the process of finalization begins, but we have to say yes. Your entire being, whether you know it or not, is crying out for adoption and redemption. We were made for this. It calls us like Capistrano calls the swallows. We're drawn to it like the monarch butterflies are drawn to the Oyamel forest in central Mexico. The things we think will satisfy our longing, the new house, the new car, the new job, the new spouse, they never do. Sometimes we try a second round of houses and cars and jobs and spouses, but the satisfaction we're sure we'll find there drains away like water on sandy soil. And then we hear that God has come to rescue us. We hear that Jesus died to save us. We learn that God wants us, really wants us, to be his people, and we dare to believe. We trust him. We give ourselves to him, and he gives himself. He gives us, verse 23, his spirit. As soon as his spirit, his life enters us, we begin to change. One of those changes is that a fresh hope, a living hope, is planted like a seed in our souls. It's a hope that neither disappointment nor rejection nor loss nor illness can extinguish. I say like a seed, but this hope is no delicate, wispy thing with feathers, as the poet put it. It's hard and it's strong, like a thing of iron. The Bible calls it an anchor, an anchor for the soul. It holds us fast when life's storms rage. This hope holds us when others are swept away into distraction and despair. Unlike every other anchor, the anchor line of this hope doesn't go down, it goes up into heaven. We didn't forge this anchor. We don't have to fabricate it. It's given to us when in our confidence in Jesus we turn our lives over to God. If you haven't done that, I urge you to do so. It not only means the difference between hope and hopelessness, but between being finalized as the person you were always meant and deeply longed to be or being subjected to meaninglessness and futility. You see, you cannot 
be you without Jesus. Your whole problem up to now is not so much that you've been a bad person, but that you've been the wrong person. You haven't been you. You can't be you until you're his. You can't be you without Jesus. Without him, you will fall short. You will sin and fall short of the glory, the glory of God. One last thing. If you have given yourself to Jesus and received his life, his spirit, learn to use your anchor. My son Kevin and I once sat in a boat up in Quebec, and we were about 100 yards or so from a waterfall, above a waterfall, and we deployed our anchor. We didn't leave it in the boat. We didn't throw out buoys. We let down our anchor, felt it catch, and saw the line grow taut. If life is turbulent for you just now, and you're turning to everything but God to help you, to your money, your wit, your friends, your spouse, then the hope you received when you believed in Jesus is going to be about as much use to you as an anchor lying inside the boat. You're throwing out buoys that will be swept away with you. Deploy your anchor. Trust in God. Feel the line of hope grow taut. And hope will secure you. Let's pray. God, give us what we need out of this text. Maybe something to one person, something else to another, but give us what we need. And what we need is you. So by the amazing grace of Jesus Christ, give yourself to us.